Hey, welcome to the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today we have a conversation all about Arabic poetry with Professor Huda Fakhreddin. I hope you enjoy it. And as always, if you'd like to support Afikra's podcast, go to afikra.com/support. Thanks so much. Welcome everybody to this live taping of Afikra's conversations with Associate Professor of Arabic Literature Huda Fakhreddin, who is a professor of Arabic Literature at the Middle East Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Her work focuses on modernist movements or trends in Arabic poetry and the relationship to the Arabic literary tradition. She's interested in the role of the Arabic qasida as a space for negotiating the foreign and the indigenous, the modern and the traditional, and its relationship to the poet to other poetic forms such as the free verse poem and the prose poem. She's the author of Metapoesis in the Arabic Tradition which came out in 2015 and the Arabic prose poem Poetic Theory and Practice which came out in 2021. Huda, welcome to Afikra. Thank you, Mikey. Thank you for this invitation. I'm very happy to be here. I'm really happy that you are here. It spells trouble for me when I don't know how to pronounce the first word of the book that we're about to discuss and so I'm revealing my ignorance uh, at the very jump of the talk. It means that there's a journey ahead. That's exciting. exactly. I'm excited about that ignorance to slowly be replaced by some sort of information. So let me let me ask you first a little biographical stuff. Did you grow up reading poetry? Yes. That's the most vivid memory for me growing up is reading or listening to poetry. Yes. Yeah. What what sort of po- poetry did you love as a child? I grew up in Lebanon during the Civil War and I don't really remember going to school regularly. I don't remember much really. It's all a big blur, but one of the most vivid uh, memories in my mind is in the car between house and house and between the south and beirut and my father's voice reciting to us poetry so what kind of poetry i grew up fascinated by the muallaqat so the seven pre-islamic seven or 10 pre-islamic poems and i memorized their openings without really understanding a single word <laughs> they were magic to me it was like i had a superpower and i learned i grew up listening to stories about mutanabbi and the salik the pre-islamic poets al-ma'arri abu tammam and i always thought that these were like distant relatives that i will meet eventually uh i have to say i was disappointed when i studied them in school it really created a conflict in me because these people were mine and i thought that they were being misrepresented in the in the curriculum But yeah, that was the poetry I love. Mostly what we now call classical Arabic poetry. I know I know you have a question about that. Yeah. But pre-Islamic and Abbasid mainly. And as a teenager, I read Badr Shakir Sayyab and I fell in love with his Diwan. I carried it with me everywhere I go. And then as I grew up, I started reading English poetry maybe as a as a form of rebellion as, you know, asserting my own my own mm-hmm. as opposed to my father's and my family's so i also carried uh, selections of ts eliot's poems with me everywhere i go when i yes i memorized the openings of many of his poems and those were my the voices in my head yeah did some of them did some of the poetry um when did it sort of uh depart from being a sort of a musical and melodic and sort of auditory relationship to being something that was about meaning and about 
the actual written word? I think it, it was maybe in, in school, because all of my memories of this immediate relationship with poetry as sound precede my school years. And they were rela- they related to the family and to home, my grandfather and my father, and these spaces that were created and that were that became home to me when we really didn't have a stable home. I'm not sure if you, you're probably too young to remember growing up uh, in Civil War Beirut where things are always shifting and you never really settled, you're always on the move. So home was this, that sound that was created uh, around a, an Arabic text, often a poem. Yeah. But then in school, that's where the conflict began and, you know, this the struggle to to preserve my ownership over these texts as opposed to the way they're often dissected and flattened and reduced in curricula and in, you know. So it's not that you were, you felt betrayed insofar as these poems were now, you felt like you needed to share them. They were no longer your relatives and they were sort of this like open source thing. It's also that they were being bastardized by, through the, through the teaching of them. Yes, I think so. That's it. I, I would love to share them. That's how I create re- created relationships. Those are some of my most lasting relationships. That's how my, I met my husband over sharing a poem. Uh, but it was the way they're framed to, 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 to appear outdated and archaic and flat, whereas they are, to me, some of the most urgent forms of art that I've encountered in my life. And I, I feel that there's always... Uh, something worthwhile. There's so there's always a gain going back to them, back yeah. to them, and in the presence of the poem. I'd never think of of great poetry as as old or past. A poem, I always say, is, is in the present moment, whether it was written a thousand years ago or yesterday. Yeah. Okay. I want to come back to this this very thing um, later on in the interview when we talk about who you're who you're writing for. Before this, I, I, I can't betray my ignorance, and I have to ask you some basic terms to and since I have you here and help you help me understand this. What is classical Arabic poetry? I told you this is a huge question, and I'm gonna you know muster the courage to attempt an answer. Let me begin with the word classical. I have an issue with the word classical because what it means, the association that many readers or listeners will have with classical is that it's something that's outdated, something that's ancient, fossilized in a way, that's irrelevant or that you have to make relevant. And that doesn't apply to to Arabic poetry, I think. So when we say classical, we mean poetry that was written a long time ago. And I just said there's time in poetry is unlike time outside of poetry. So it's not a development or progression or succession. So a historical approach to poetry is always reductive and and, um, um, will fail in addressing what makes poetry poetry. But we use that term to refer to pre-modern Arabic poetry, poetry written before the 20th century, and more specifically, poetry written according to the rules of classical prosody in Arabic, yani meter and rhyme, a poem that has a single meter and a mono rhyme, or sometimes a variation of rhyme, is referred to as classical, as opposed to modern Arabic poetry, which liberated itself gradually from those rules. What, what was before classical Arabic poetry? 
So we use the term to refer to a, a, a long stretch of poetry yeah. from if you there were poets writing classical Arabic poetry in, in terms of form in around in the first half of the 20th century. So if you start there and go back, you'll go all the way back to the earliest poems that have that were, were preserved or have that we have. And those are pre-Islamic poems. So that's why it's a very problematic label, because, you yeah. know, it comes together hundreds, centuries of poetry in, in this very um, easily manipulated label. Yeah, the assumption is that Arabic poetry for all of these centuries was one thing, unchangeable, rigid, fossilizing over time until it becomes uh, this classical thing that we need to make an effort to, to read or understand or connect to. And I think that is not true. So, but in terms of form, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Ask no, me. no, no, no. Go ahead in terms of form, and then I'm going to ask in a question. In terms of form, it, it really uh, centers on meter. So we tend to call a poem classical when it follows a single meter and has mono rhyme. It's written, written according to the archetypal form, the qasida. And then we call modern poetry that, uh, that doesn't follow that as rigidly or completely liberates itself from it as does the prose poem. But even under the label modern Arabic poetry, that should be nuanced. It's not only one thing. There are many modern Arabic poems or forms of modern Arabic poetry. Yeah. As there are many modes of Arabic poetry that's included under the problematic label of classical. Yeah. So it, what I was going to say earlier, it's, it's almost like in sort of uh, the Western European musical tradition, the term classical music gets thrown out as basically music, orchestral music, right? Instrumental music, but it includes, in common parlance, it includes romantic music and Baroque music and classical. It can even include like John Cage in some cases, but it's that's clearly not um, classical by any sort of uh, rigid definition. Okay, I wanna talk about modernist because when I think of the word modernist, I always think about the 20th century and the sort of 1950s. And what do you mean when you say Abbasid modernist poetry? So I deliberately and maybe a, a little cautiously used the term modernist in this first book, Metapoesis in the Average, mm -hmm. to describe the Abbasid poets. And I, I posit that and try to explain it in the introduction to the book where I say that I my attempt or one of my goals in this book is to divorce modernist from history or modernism in poetry from history, to redefine the term modernist to mean uh, a modernizing or revitalizing or experimenting or um, a trend in poetry that doesn't necessarily have to happen in the 20th century. There are examples of it before that. Poets are always looking to make it new, to make something new. And in the Abbasid age, the 9th, 10th, and 11th century, there were poets who were preoccupied with the need to to make the Arabic Qasida new. Their ways of making it new are not as clearly identifiable as they might be in, in the 20th century where they broke the form on the page, it looks different. They were still writing Qasidas, metered and rhymed, but the revolution was on the level of rhetoric and imagery and language. And I, in this book, uh, argue that it is just as revolutionary and groundbreaking as, you know, uh, uh, 
getting rid of, of rules of prosody. And that's why I insist on calling, calling them modernist or modernizing, because I think that moment, and again, going back to my initial idea of time, of history and its uh, periods and categories are not as relevant in a poetic approach when we're interested in how poetry thinks of itself and develops and how poets have conversations with each other across time. It doesn't always matter who came first. Sometimes somebody who lived in the ninth century might be more new poetically than somebody writing today. At the time, was it thought of as being groundbreaking? Yes, it was thought of as being groundbreaking and dangerous. So the Abbasid poets, people like Bashar ibn Burd, Abu Nuwas, Abu Tammam, Buhturi, and we, there's always a comparison between Abu Tammam and Buhturi. Buhturi comes out as being the more moderate, the less problematic of the two, but they're both modernizers. They were described as muhdath poets, and in Arabic the word muhdath uh, it means like some innovating something that's problematic, something that's hard to categorize, something that's menacing or unsettling. Like, like cutting edge almost. Yeah. And they were also called, their poetry was called bedia, related to bida, sedition, fitna, like something that might upset order in life, not only in language and in poetry and in the arts. This was a poetry that, that threatened to upset institutions from the institution of language and, 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 and criticism to institutions around the Quran, to institutions of politics and religion. And this is why many of these poets were attacked. Some of them ended up being executed horrifically, as is the case of Bashar ibn Burd, or just described as mufsidin, as, as corruptors agitators. And that's why poetry is important, yeah, Mikey, as you ask me. So let me ask you a question. So what happened afterwards? The ninth century to the 20th century, there's a lot of time. Did it sort of lull for a long time? Or was there a lack of disruption? Was there a sort of a step backwards, so to speak? Well, there's always, I think, as long as there are poets, there's always this need to present something new, to break through and disrupt in a positive way, to revitalize language and the world. But again, I go back to this historicist approach to the Arabic literary tradition, which highlights the Abbasid age as the golden age. And then what comes after the post-classical is often thought of in Arabic as Asr al-Hitat, a time of where things calmed down and became repetitive and derivative. And that's also a problematic view of this period. There are amazing scholars recently who are rediscovering this period and, you know, dusting it off and showing us how much creativity and experimentation happened. But the Abbasid age rem remains a high point where much of that was happening in a, in a relatively short period of time. And poets were in conversation with each other. And that's where the meta-poetry and... Uh, in conversation with their critics and their detractors and their, their um, the objectors to their projects. So, so there was a lot of theorizing that accompanied the poetry in that moment uh, that I study in my first book. Amazing. So I want to talk a little bit about the second book, um, which is uh, entitled The Arabic Prose Poem, for those who can't see the screen. Um, and so let me ask you just a really basic question. What is free verse Arabic poetry and what is Arabic prose poetry? What do those terms have in common and what, in what ways are they completely different? 
So to start off, it's important to note that we have borrowed the term free verse and prose poetry from Western traditions, English in this case. But free verse in Arabic is very specific and particular to Arabic. It's not the same as free verse in French or free verse in English. Free verse in Arabic is relatively free. It's not entirely free. So the Qasida, which is the classical Qasida, something like and it will go on like this for all the verses that, it, that sometimes 100, sometimes 50, 50 verses on the same meter with the same monorhyme. This is the classical, the archetypal Qasida. The free verse poem, which was launched supposedly according to critics who like to pin, pin, pin things down, the end of the 40s with poets like Nazik al-Malaika, Badr Sheikh al-Sayyab, Abdul Wahab al-Bayati, and Adonis and many others, was a loosening of the of prosody or of the rules of, of meter and rhyme in the Arabic poem, but not entirely getting rid of them. So a poem like Badr Sheikh al-Sayyab's Unshudat al-Matar, Aynaki Rabatan Akhil in Sa'at al-Sahar, or Shurfatani Rahayan An Hum al-Qamar, is no longer a meter, but it's a foot. And this is why the more accurate uh, term to call the free verse Arabic poem is Qasida al-Tafayla, because it replaces the foot with one, with the, it replaces the meter with one foot and considers it a unit for building the Qasida. Uh, so the poet now has relative freedom to use one foot in a line. And instead of the bait or the verse, now we have a line or 10 uh, feet or tafailat in a line. So this is the free verse Arabic poem or qasidat tafaila. So there were still rules. There was, there was still some red tape and poetry does not like that. All of poetry is always seeking to break through and to transcend and transgress. And this is why it was only natural for poets to then want to break down that wall or that fence. And this is when the Arabic prose poem, uh, the, the project of the Arabic prose poem was launched very deliberately, I think, and the theory behind it was much more elaborate and coherent than the actual poetry in practice. But around 1960, we think of as when the, the first two manifestos of Qasidat al-Nathar were published in Arabic, and then poetry became this, so when a reader, this that we have on the screen, an example from Unsil Haj. So when a reader of English or French poetry looks at this, they will call this a free, a free verse poem because on the page in English, it looks like a free verse poem. It's lineated. We tend to think of prose poetry in, in French and English, for example, as looking like prose. That's not the case in Arabic. As long as there's no tafaila consideration, it is called prose. And for a... Uh, a reader with an ear for Arabic poetry, when they listen to this, they will instantly hear the lack of meter. The fact that this sounds like prose, there's nothing governing it in terms of, of uh, prosody. Um, okay, let's do the quick Q&A, then we're going to open up the questions from the audience. The first question is, what are you reading or watching these days? What am I reading? I'm reading... I just happened to have started reading two books at the same time by coincidence, reading them in parallel because they arrived in the mail at the same time. So the first one is Professor Samia Mehrez's book. I've been a fan and a follower of her scholarship, especially in translation studies theory, but this is a book she wrote in Arabic. It's titled Ibrahim Naji Ziyara Hamima Ta'akharat Kathira. And it's a book in which she goes back to rediscover her maternal grandfather, the poet Ibrahim Naji. 
And in the early chapters, I was, I was, you know, uh, fascinated and very intrigued by the comments that she offers about her uh, experience in school, what she calls the colonial education, where, you know, we grow up with this schizophrenic conflicted relationship with our Arabic language and our literary heritage. So this story of reclaiming and rewriting, rediscovering the narrative intrigues me and interests me very much. And in the same vein of, of reclaiming and rewriting, the other book that I happen to be reading at the same time is Professor Noor Masalha's book, Palestine Across Millennia. And this is a book where he studies the history of education, literacy, and educational revolutions in Palestine. And he strings together this rich and vibrant cultural educational history of Palestine against the false a racist narrative that portrays Palestine as this empty place where nothing was happening. And I think both of these works that I happen to be reading coincidentally at the same time are important scholarship, but they're also much needed forms of, of commitment and activism in our field. And I'm very, I'm learning a lot and I'm very inspired by both. Amazing. Okay. I have to look both those up. Amazing. Okay, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Okay, I have so many answers to this question. There's <laughs> one. Answer, there's one answer that I might regret sharing, but I can't but share. It has to do with this is like a childhood fantasy of mine. As I mentioned, I grew up in Lebanon, and my closest friend was my brother Ali, who's a year and a half younger. And during the war, it felt sometimes that we were the only two children in the world. One of our favorite games was to pretend that we were Ashamfara and Ta'abbata Sharran. These are two Salik, pre-Islamic poets. This is influenced, of course, by stories and poetry we heard, we heard from my father, but also a TV series, a Syrian TV series that we had seen. So we'd run around, climb trees, pretending that we were Salik. And I'd memorize the opening of Milamiyat al-Arab and that Specific line, وَلِيدُونَكُمْ أَهْلُونَ سِيدٌ عَمَلَّسٌ وَأَرْقَةُ زُهْلُولٌ وَعَرْفَاءُ جَيْأَلُ I didn't understand any of the words initially, but that was magical. It was transporting. So my first answer would be that. But the other answer that I'll commit to today, that's the official answer, based on what I've been working on recently, is Um Kulthum. So I'm working on a book on Um Kulthum. I'd love to shadow her for a day, preferably a, a Thursday, right before she goes on stage, yeah. or during one of her meetings with her poets when they're selecting and editing a chasida. Interesting. What do you think people most misunderstand about your work? Well, thinking of the, the most recent book, I'm not interested in writing surveys and literary history. So often people say, well, you've, spoke, you've mentioned this poet and that, but you did not mention so-and-so. I don't think the the point of the work I do is to present an index of all the poets or a survey or to fill in certain quotas, poet from, poets from this country, that country, women, men. I'm interested in, in reading poems and uh, in studying what poems can do. And I've said in, the, in that book that the selection of poets I chose could, could be replaced with other poets, but I chose those ones because their work lends itself to my argument. I'm not choosing them over others. I'm not saying they are better than others. And I hope that the work is going to be a first step. It's not the end all final statement on the Arabic prose poem. It's far from that. Um, that's one thing. Okay, Some cool. 
whose work do you admire or are inspired by? I'm sure there's a long list, but if you would like to highlight one person. Yeah, I, I don't have single answers for you. Many, many people. Uh, I've always been inspired by the work of, I've lived with poets whom I admire, my father and my partner, Ahmed al So their toying with language always triggers and inspires me. My students always inspire me. They keep me on my toes. And I'm fascinated by the way their ideas develop. But if I were to, to name one person who inspires many of us, It would have to be uh, Professor Yaroslav Stetkevich, who passed away in the summer, last summer. He's somebody that, yeah, I've always been in awe of his dedication to poetry above all and to Arabic poetry and its genius, as he would say. And I learned from him that um, that to be loyal to the Arabic poetic tradition, you have to study Bru'ul Qais as seriously as you, as you would study a poet publishing their first collection today. Uh, and so he will be greatly missed, but he will always be present the way a great poem is always present. Beautiful. Huda, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to talk with us and to answer my, <laughs> my, my basic uh, complicated questions. Um, I really, really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Mikey. And thank you to all who asked amazing questions. Okay, everybody, this will come up on our podcast feed and on YouTube tomorrow. So if you know anyone who would have loved to be here but missed it, please share it. Um, and this week we have two other events. So uh, go over to afikra.com slash RSVP to see what we have coming up. Okay, everybody, good night or good day wherever you are. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com slash afikra. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to afikra.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks. Thanks.